Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So it is Super Bowl Sunday, as I mentioned. It seems appropriate to talk about favorite sports movies. So I wonder if you have a favorite sports movie. Anyone want to shout one out? Yes. The Blind Side. Great one. Yeah, what else? Longest Yard. Anyone else? Miracle, yeah. The Natural. Days, of course, Days of Thunder. I would expect nothing less from you, Matthew. Yes. Waterboy. That is a classic sports movie. Thank you so much, Sawyer. My wife would appreciate that, trust me. Caddyshack is another one. Yep. I was thinking about, um, what about Rudy? Anyone like Rudy? Someone said that. Thank you, Dorian. Uh, Any Given Sunday is another one. Uh, Remember the Titans? It's a classic, isn't it? Uh, Mighty Ducks, of course. I think it's one, two, and three at least. We just got Disney Plus, so we're going to watch all of them. Um, And then, of course, The Sandlot. I mean, you've got to watch The Sandlot as well. That's a great one, too. Any others? Happy Gilmore, yeah. There's tons, but we haven't mentioned perhaps my favorite or one of my favorites, which is Jerry Maguire, okay? Sports movie, right? And there's this great scene in the movie Jerry Maguire uh, where Jerry, if you don't know the story, let me explain a bit. He's this young sports agent, and he's become disillusioned with the industry, and he wants to change it from within. And so he gets this moment, and let me share what he says. He says, two days later at our Miami conference, a breakthrough or breakdown Breakthrough. I couldn't escape one simple thought. I hated myself. No, here's what it was. I hated my place in the world. I had so much to say, no one to listen. And then it happened. It was the oddest, most unexpected thing. I began to write what they call a mission statement, not a memo. A suggestion for the future of our company. A light like this doesn't come along often. And I seized it. What started out as one page became 25. Suddenly, I was my father's son again. I was remembering the simple pleasures of this job, the way a stadium sounds when my player performs well, the way we're meant to protect them in health and in injury. With so many clients, we'd forgotten what was important. I wrote and wrote and wrote, and I'm not even a writer. I was remembering my mentor's words, Dickie Fox, who said, the key to this business is personal relationships. Suddenly, it was all pretty clear. The answer was fewer clients, less money, more attention, caring for them, caring for ourselves, just starting our lives, really. I'll be the first to admit what I was writing was touchy-feely. I didn't care. It was the me I'd always wanted to be. I took it to a copy mat and printed up 110 copies. The cover looked like Catch It in the Rye. I entitled it The Things We Think and Do Not Say. The guy at the copy shop was pretty, uh, the copy shop was pretty impressed. He said, that's how you become great, man. And then Jerry sends it out to all his work colleagues, right, that night. And he walks into work the next day, and he's clearly regretting what he's done. He's not sure what the response is going to be. But as he comes in, they all start to applaud like this. They're clapping him, and they're like, finally, somebody said it. Good work, Maguire. Yeah, yeah. He says, I was 35. I'd started my life. Smiling and cheering, though. Two cynics say, how long did you give him? About a week. (laughs) And within a week, Jerry is fired. Jerry gets the cam. I wonder if you've ever been rejected for something that you believe passionately about. Maybe it's a sports team that others just don't believe in. Maybe it's for your faith in Christ. Maybe it's a person that you believe in, but other people, they're like, you cannot trust that person. Maybe it's a book that you've read that you loved, and other people, they just think it's terrible. Maybe it's a movie that you love, 
that other people again think it's terrible. We had this conversation at our middle school camp this summer about whether Jaws 3 was the greatest or worst movie ever. And one of our leaders was convinced that Jaws 3 was the greatest movie ever, to which myself and Johnny Keyes both said, no, it's a terrible Jaws movie. You have to pick the first one or the second one. But sometimes we reject people, don't we, for their beliefs. And we're continuing our series called Beginnings, the beginning of a year, and we're looking at the beginning of a gospel. We're looking at the beginning of the gospel of Luke. We're going to go all the way through the gospel of Luke this year. We're going to cover basically every single passage from start to finish, pretty much in chronological order, because we want to have a clear vision in 2020, where everyone's talking about having a clear vision. We want to have a clear vision of the main thing, and the main thing being who is Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing already and what we'll see throughout this year is, first of all, our faith is well-founded. It's well-grounded. Luke is a writer who cares about details. He cares about the history. He cares about the names, the places, and these things are corroborated by non-Christian historians as well. But secondly, what we'll see is perhaps we don't know Jesus as well as we thought we did. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus is a man on a mission. He is on a mission, and ultimately, his mission is to save all of mankind. That's what he wants to do. Ultimately, he wants to set every single one of us free and then invite us into his mission as well, to participate with him. Now, many of us might think that things just happened to Jesus. He was born, and then the rest of his life was just this series of coincidences that just things happened to him, people happened to him, problems happened to him, all kinds of stuff that there was no real plan beyond simply perhaps just loving people. But there is an intentionality to every single thing that Jesus does, an intentionality. But notice as well that in that intentionality, he gets rejected. So let's turn to our scripture reading and see what we can learn from Luke. If you want to follow along, you can find it on the scripture insert inside your announcement sheet. sheet. So as we look at these scriptures, we have to remember the context of the story, okay? Remember, we talked about this the past few weeks. It's been 400 years since God has spoken to his people, since he's spoken to Israel. It's gone 400 years from Malachi all the way up to the birth of Jesus. And then it's been 30 more years after the birth of Jesus until anything new happens. And this crazy guy called John the Baptist shows up. And it's dark times in Israel. There's all kinds of bad things happening. The political leaders, the religious leaders, the governors of that area are people who are corrupt. All of them are corrupt. And so the Jewish people are longing. They are longing for someone to come and to rescue them. This is the context. And then Luke shares Jesus' birth. He shares his baptism. He shares his genealogy, reminding us that he is of the line of Adam. And yet he is able to overcome the temptations that we can't overcome because he's going to live a sinless life as someone who is 100% human, but also 100% God. And it's this long time of preparation for Jesus, isn't it? It's about 30 years. And even after he's baptized, we have this period of 40 days where he's in the wilderness. And you think, well, surely Jesus, you just got to get on with it. Get on with it, Jesus. These people need rescuing. But there's more important things happening there. He's being prepared for the next three years of his life. And then we read at the end of last week's lesson, if you remember this, you don't have it in your scripture sheet, but let me just recap it. It's verses 14 and 15. After the temptations. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out about him, and it went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, 
being glorified by all. Jesus is becoming a bit of a celebrity, isn't he? People are starting to get a little bit infatuated with him. It's like my youngest daughter, Lizzie. All she cares about right now is could she meet someone famous? She's really excited about this idea. And if she meets someone who's met someone famous, she thinks it's the best thing in the world. People are starting to get infatuated because Jesus is becoming one of these famous people. They want to be near him. They want to meet him. They want to hear him speak. And then we read verse 16. And Jesus returned in the power of the sorry, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. It's the Sabbath day, right? It's, it's probably Friday evening or Saturday. Uh, it's the Jewish Sabbath. And Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Remember, that's where he was from originally. He was born in Bethlehem, but his parents had gone back there for the census. And so once that was done, they fled to Egypt because they were worried he was going to be killed. And then they come back to their hometown of Nazareth. And that's where he's uh, raised for the rest of his life. And what does he do? Well, he goes to church. It's the Sabbath. It's the day of rest, right? So much like you guys, he shows up at church. It's his custom, it even tells us. Now, a typical Jewish service in the synagogue isn't really so much a service of worship, per se. It's more of a teaching service. But here's what typically happens. The service is held if 10 men are present. Okay, Remember, it's a pretty misogynistic culture. I don't care if the women are present, but if you've got 10 guys, you can have a service. All right? Now, the congregation then recites the Shema, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which I had to learn in seminary. It's the only reason I know it. And that's from Deuteronomy 6. It talks about how the Lord our God is one, and we're called to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then they say some set prayers. Okay, they have some different prayers. Then they have a Bible reading from the law. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then they have a reading from the prophets. So there will be people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. And then it's followed by a teaching that usually ties the two readings together. Now, they didn't have ministers, so those people who were overseeing the synagogue would pick someone to come teach and to read uh, the, the word. And then the service would close with a blessing. Does it sound familiar? Liturgy, prayers, Bible readings, teaching, blessing, right? We follow the same pattern today. Of course, there's one big difference because of something that's happened, right? We do this as well, right? We do the communion because we're remembering what Christ accomplished in his um, death and resurrection. So that's a typical service, and that's what Jesus would have been participating in. And as you can imagine, right, there's this anticipation about who's going to read and teach, and then they see Jesus is there, and they wonder, are they going to ask him to read and to teach? And yes, they do. And then they're probably thinking, what's he going to read, and what's he going to teach on? And he likely knows everyone there, doesn't he? It's his hometown. They're probably all thinking, well, this is going to be interesting. I never heard this guy teach, but I remember when he fixed my shelf on my wall because he was a carpenter, right? It'd be interesting to see what he has to say. So they're curious about him. And so he gets up and he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. It's a reading from 700 years before his birth. And he gives this, and it's his mission statement, if you will. Think about Jerry Maguire. Well, this is Jesus giving his mission statement. Let me read it to you. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' mission. 
It's all encapsulated right here at the beginning of his three years of ministry. And what is it? Well, he basically says, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's going to proclaim the good news of the gospel to the broken and the lost. He's going to bring freedom to those who are trapped in evil, sin, and injustice. And he's going to bring healing to the sick and sight to the blind. That's it. That's all he's going to do for three years. That's all he's going to do is his ministry. And when he talks about this, there's both a physical and a spiritual sense, isn't there? When he's talking about bringing sight to the blind, he's talking about, yes, he's actually going to heal people. And we'll see that later in the Gospel of Luke. He's literally going to help people who are blind to see. And then he's also talking about how he's going to help those who are blind and do not understand about him. He's going to help them to see also with the eyes of their heart. Similarly with the poor, he's talking about, yes, he's going to help those who are poor, who don't have much in the way of finances, and he's going to bless them. But he's also going to help bless those who are poor in spirit, those who are people who know that they are longing for something more than this world has to offer. There's two things going on here. And then at the end, he says this strange phrase, doesn't he? Verse 19, did you catch that? He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does anyone know what the year of the Lord's favor is? Any ideas? Scholars out there? It's the year of Jubilee, right? You may have heard of that, the year of Jubilee. And if you're wondering what that is, well, it comes from Leviticus 25, and it's important that we understand this. It says this, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And it shall be a jubilee for you. And when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan, that 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. So explaining this idea, in case it's the first time you've heard it, one commentator describes it like this. The word jubilee literally means ram's horn in Hebrew. And it's defined in Leviticus 25.9 as the sabbatical year after seven cycles of seven years, so 49 years. The 50th year was to be a time of celebration and rejoicing for the Israelites. The ram's horn was blown on the 10th day of the seventh month to start the 50th year of universal redemption. The year of Jubilee, catch this, involved a year of release from indebtedness. Leviticus 25 and all types of bondage. All prisoners and captives were set free. All slaves were released. All debts were forgiven. And all property was returned to its original owners. I think the bankers in here are probably getting a little bit nervous now on this idea. (laughs) In addition, all labor was to cease for one year. And those bound by labor contracts were released from them. One of the benefits of the Jubilee was that both the land and the people were able to rest. The commentator Christopher Wright explains it. The Jubilee did not entail a redistribution of land, as some popular writing mistakenly supposes. It wasn't a redistribution, but a restoration. It was not a handout of bread or charity, but a restoration to family units of the opportunity and the resources to provide for themselves again. So the purpose then was to release the poor from the shame of their financial struggles that had accumulated perhaps over 50 years and maybe been passed down to them generationally by their grandparents and their parents. And it was to restore their ability to be economically productive again. Not a handout, but a way to bring about freedom from shame. So if Jesus portrays his liberating work in terms of this jubilee idea, this year of the Lord's favor, 
What do we conclude about the freedom he's come to announce? How does the Jubilee inform our understanding of the Christian life? Well, the Jubilee that we've experienced, if we follow him, includes deliverance from the oppressive debt of sin. We owe God a debt. That is glorious in itself. But this freedom from sin also entails a freedom for good works, all to the glory of God. We are cleared of our debts, catch this, in order that we may be truly productive, bearing the fruit of a changed heart. Paul captures this dual freedom beautifully in his words to Titus. He praises our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus is revealing to the Israelites what this year of Jubilee really is all about and what it was meant to point them towards, which was his coming and the freedom he's going to bring. Well, in verse 20, we see Jesus, he sits down. Now, why does he sit down? Well, that would just be to assume the posture of a teacher. The teacher, once they've read, would sit. And that would mean that they were about to teach him. What's he going to say? Again, there's this sense of anticipation. And he reads, or he says, verse 21. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is not what they were expecting, okay? Because he is claiming to be the Messiah the chosen one, the one who's come to rescue them. And so see what happens in verse 22. They say this. They say, um, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Now clearly the Nazarites, they're impressed at first, but they're not convinced. Isn't this Joseph's son? You know, remember the guy who fixed our stuff, our wooden stuff? Isn't that the carpenter's son? He cannot be the Messiah. It reminds me of the Monty Python movie I watched recently with uh, one of my life groups, <laughs> The Life of Brian. And all these people gather to see Brian, who they think is the Messiah. And they're outside his window. She opens the curtains, and, and there's a thousand people outside their window because they want to see Brian, the Messiah. And the mom says, he's not the Messiah. He's just a naughty little boy. <laughs> Jesus, though, is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. They can't believe it like Brian's mom, right? They cannot believe that he could be the Messiah. And so Jesus rebukes them for their stubborn unbelief. Verse 23, and he said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he reminds them of two incidents where God rescues pagans. We've got the first one, 25 through 26. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over them in the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Elijah is sent to help a widow who's outside the borders of Israel. That's shocking in itself. And then a second one he gives is verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, Elisha helps a leper from Syria, but none in Israel. See, for Jesus' hearers, Israel's God is rescuing the wrong people. What Jesus is proclaiming and what he's saying about Elijah and Elisha is scandalous because he's rescuing the wrong people. And this is probably what they're so astonished about in his teaching. Why would God show such grace to these kinds of people, to non-Jews, to non-Israelites, to Gentiles and pagans? Why would he do that? Remember, they're this oppressed people. 
They're oppressed by Gentiles. The Romans have come in, and before them, other nations have come in, and they have oppressed them and put them down. Bishop N.T. Wright says it's like someone in Britain or France during World War II speaking of Hitler's healing and restoration. Today, it might be like someone saying, I believe God's calling us to share the gospel with people who are in ISIS. We might be scandalized by it, saying they don't deserve the gospel. They don't deserve it. But that's what Jesus is saying. Well, much like Jerry Maguire's boss, the Nazarites can't stand it. (laughs) They cannot stand it. There's this murderous wrath that comes up in them. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That's anger and hatred. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. He is rejected by his own people, people who knew and loved him to the point where they want to kill him. But miraculously, he just walks right through them, doesn't he? Verse 20, but passing through their midst, he went away. See, it's not his time yet. He's just beginning. And so in God's power, he walks right through these people. There's nothing they can do. He's a man on a mission, and he's got a plan, and he's going to work this plan out. And this is only just the beginning right now. But you know, a day is going to come when his mission will lead to his rejection and his death. And he will die on a cross in a lonely place. And he will die and be in the ground for three days. But then he will rise again because he has chosen to do it in his timing. Because he wants to set people free from sin and death, which is where this all began. I wonder as we come to the end of our story for today from Luke, just a couple of things that go through my mind to ask. First of all, have you been set free by Jesus, or are you still in chains? Have you been set free by Jesus, or are you still in chains? Maybe you're still captive to sin. There's sin in your life that you just cannot let go of if it means that you need to turn to Christ. Things that are just holding you down, holding you back from a relationship with him, and you're drifting aimlessly through your life, wondering, Isn't there more to this? I'm tired of this life I'm living. I feel alone. I feel fearful. I feel tied down. I wonder if that's you. Jesus is saying, I've come to set you free. I've come to set you free. You can live life in freedom if you repent and follow me. And he's come to give you purpose as well. Note that. He's come to give you purpose. Listen to what Pastor Rick Warren writes in The Purpose Driven Life. You were born by his purpose, that's God's purpose, for his purpose. You are not an accident. Your birth was no mistake or mishap, and your life was no fluke of nature. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. God made you for a reason. Every person was designed with a purpose in mind. And friends, that changes everything. Every single person has worth and inherent value in this world. Every single person. I have some copies of that book in the lobby right there by our drinks. If you want to take one, it's free. It's for you. I think that book might change your life because God speaks to people through the purpose-driven life. Second question I want to ask is, if you've been set free, are you living intentionally? Are you sure of the mission that God's given you? Today, I want to tell you what your mission is. So listen up, all right? This is your mission. 
empowered by the Spirit, you are to proclaim the good news of, to the broken and the lost, bringing freedom to those trapped by evil, sin, and injustice, and bringing, bringing healing to the sick and sight to the blind. Does it sound familiar? That's Jesus' mission, right? Jesus invites you into that same mission. Disciples of Jesus, that's what they do. That's how they live their lives. That's it. And within that, there will be particular callings to certain things. Okay, I, I admit that. But the big overall mission, that's about as basic as it gets, is that. That's our mission. And you too should expect, expect rejection and persecution if you do this. You know, it is not a popular message, especially when it comes to confronting people's sin and evil. When people challenge the ways of this world that are not right, there's pushback and there's rejection. Jesus experienced it, and it's something that we should expect too. Peter speaks of it, doesn't he? He speaks of Jesus' rejection in our New Testament reading. But then right after that, we don't have it in this passage, but I want to read it to you. He says this, and he's writing to these early disciples. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Too many of us, even Christians, drift through this life aimlessly. We drift. We just wonder, what's my purpose? What's my mission? We've been set free and yet still we drift. God has a plan for each one of us for our lives beyond that moment of salvation. And he's calling you to live it out. And if you're not sure what that plan is, I'd love to talk to you about it. There are life group leaders who'd love to talk to you about it. I'd love for you to take one of those books today and to read that and to see what God says to you through it. Because he has a purpose for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and how it speaks to us today. Lord God, would you come and would you set the captives free in this place? Would you restore sight to the blind? And would you also uh, be a person who uplifts the poor and the broken and the lost? Lord Jesus, we also pray that for those of us who receive that freedom, would you direct us and lead us and help us to live out your purposes in this world even when we face the inevitable rejection. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.